You're listening to Divorce Story, the podcast that will help you get back on your feet after a relationship separation. I'm Annalise Dent. And I'm Cass Thorburn. And on the show, we're going to be talking about how you can successfully guide your children through separation. We'll be speaking to a child psychologist about tips and tricks you can take home to guide you about how to speak to your child and also really importantly help them through this really emotional time. And we'll be joined by the author of Surviving Your Split. Lucy Mannering is going to walk us through how to be the same parent during a separation. Lucy, Surviving Your Split, absolutely love the premise of the book. I love the vibe of the book. Love everything. Tell us, how did it come to be? Oh, thank you. Look, my sister and I, Rebecca, wrote the book after we were both divorced within four months of each other. And so was that planned? Like, how did that come to be? No, no, it was was definitely not planned. Uh, We both had, she had two small children, I had three small children. Um, It was a bit of a bolt out of the blue. But we were very lucky because our father had been a family lawyer for 40 years. So we went into it eyes wide open. And we're both lawyers by training. Rebecca's a family lawyer. I'm a corporate lawyer. So a few years after our divorces, when the dust had settled, we decided that we would use what we had learnt to put out a book explaining in really simple layman's terms how to go about surviving your split. So your dad, who, as as we've talked about, is also a lawyer, he has a theory about the two parents in each divorce. Can you explain what that is to us? Yeah. So he sat me down when I was first separated and said, Lucy, in every divorce there's a sane parent and there's a crazy parent. (laughs) (laughs) And what you want is to be the sane parent. Absolutely. Now, I was very lucky in my divorce because we had two sane parents, but lots of people aren't lucky like that. And You know, being the same parent is about loving your children more than you hate your ex. So sometimes you've really got to love your children a lot because it is is hard some days. Um, It means not firing off the crazy texts that are annexed to affidavits in court and then read out because there is nothing more embarrassing than having a judge read out and an extra which says, you know, X, Y, Z, expletive, expletive, expletive. And that happens all the time. And what you don't want is for your family law matter to get to the point where a judge makes a formal judgment that you have both completely dropped the ball when it comes to parenting your children because you are both subsumed by the quagmire of your battle of the Somme-style divorce. Mm. And there have been judgments like that. Um, A really famous judgment in family law said something along the lines of, it's clear that both parties love their child However, they have completely lost sight of what they are fighting about. And really the aim of, it, of any parent, divorced or not, is to give their children a great childhood. Can the, the sane parent and the crazy parent ever swap roles? Oh, yeah, they do swap roles all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Depends on what day it is. <laughs> yeah. If you've got that intention and you are being the sane parent but your ex is being the crazy parent, you can't control that. What are some tips that you can be to really combat when someone is, in your jargon, the crazy parent, but someone who is volatile, they are not playing nice, they are not, you know, they're saying things to the kids and all things that we can't control from another party. How, how do you combat that? Yeah, absolutely. And part of the really hard thing about divorce is accepting that you can't really control what your former partner does anymore. You have no say in 
when they introduce the kids to a new person, what they do on their weekends, whether or not they come home with knit-infested hair. These are things that you just have to learn to let go. But there is a lot of things that we know works. Um, The grey rock strategy, which is... Yes, I've heard about that. I love it. Tell us us more. So you have to imagine yourself as a big grey rock in the middle of an ocean and the waves just wash over you and they might pound into you and they might create a lot of noise and fury but you're just a grey rock and you just sit there and you just let it wash over you. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you'll still be there and the waves will be gone. And I've heard that's um, really good advice if you're dealing with a narcissist. Yes. As your yes. ex. Because yeah. narcissists feed off your reaction. That's right. They feed on, on the conflict. Yeah. So the best thing you can do is yeah. be a grey rock. Yeah, just, just grey rock it out. The children really are like the children factor of a separation, if there are children. That is something that you really truly need to focus on first, isn't it? How Absolutely. important is that yeah look your sole focus should be your children and that's really hard because you've got all this noise and all this conflict and things are so scary and confusing are we going to sell the house are we going to have to move who's going to keep the dog these are all really where are the children going to go to school these this is a scary time for a lot of people I think the first thing is to make sure that the children are okay and create a calm atmosphere around them and then work methodically through the issues. These are things that can be resolved. That's also what the judge would expect though, isn't it? Absolutely. They also expect you yeah. to have tried to work out or even, you know, the expectation would be that you've been able to work out parenting on your own. Yeah, less than 5% of matters proceed to trial. Uh, the absolute expectation of the courts is that you will behave as adults in the best interests of your children. Um, and that's very much the focus of the legislation. One of the tips that I, I read in the book was you said if someone else was asking the same thing, would you take the same approach? So if your ex is asking you something and you're reading into it and you're feeling really triggered, just think, well, if that was my mum asking me or if that was my sister asking me, would I? how would I respond and put that filter on? Yeah, absolutely. Look, no one knows us better than our spouses and when you're moving into a new co-parenting relationship, your former spouse knows all the buttons to push. They yeah, are they are very good at that. They know how to trigger a reaction. So you have to think, am I saying no to this because I want to punish my ex for the manifest injuries he has done to me or she? Or is this quite a reasonable request in the circumstances? Yeah. Um, and, and that's part of being the same parent, really thinking through, I'm the adult here, these are my children, I'm responsible for ensuring that they have a great childhood. In 10 years, is this going to matter? Yeah. One of my girlfriends said this beautiful thing to me the other day. I said, you know, how, how are your kids going? Because they've been apart about a year. And she says, you know what? They're great. When they're at my house, it's the happy house. Yeah. It's the fun house. You know, we sing, we dance. And when they're at my house, they're really happy. It's the happy house. Yeah. And I thought, what a beautiful thing to give your kids. Absolutely. And house. that is a gift. That is a gift. Yeah. I, I mean, another aim of surviving divorce is to be able to go to all your children's weddings and exchange pleasantries with your former partner yeah, and not make that a terrible experience that the children have to plan for. And popular parenting isn't a goal to have. No. You know, even though your friend Annalise is talking about, you know, ours is the happy house, you have to be careful not to then 
you know, for that person to not kind of make the children feel like, oh, you know, you're popular because it's fun at your house. Yeah. Teeth still have to be brushed every night. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they do. And that's part of being the same parent. You yeah. have to be the person who, as you were saying in your last podcast, Cass, gets the children to school, uh, has clean uniforms, packs lunches, brushes teeth, makes sure that the children aren't infested with nets, have matching shoes, mm. go to sports training, I'm not interested in being best friends with my children. I'd like to be the mother that they, you know, love and adore and, you know, when they grow up go, oh, my goodness, you know, I love my mum. She's amazing. Isn't that the goal? She's my mum. Yeah. Not my best friend. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You can't be best friends with your children. It's our role to guide them and uh, mould them into decent members of society. How much do you think does it change when the children are very little, when their parents are going through a divorce, compared to when they're older? Mm. So my children um, do have quite large age gaps and my youngest was two and my eldest was ten. That's very different experiences for both of them. And you really do have to create a parenting agreement that meets the needs of all the children. Um, from the toddler to the preteen. And that can be a real challenge because they adjust differently and they react differently. Um, So that's something that we talk about quite a lot in the book about how to create different parenting agreements and how parenting agreements change as children grow older. Mm, I think that's the one thing that kind of gets forgotten, isn't it? People think, oh, you know, I've got to come to this agreement with my ex-partner and, you know, whether you go do that in mediation or do it between yourselves... The point is it's going to change later. You're Mm. then going to have an older teenage child that then says, oh, you know, actually I want to do this now. Yeah, it's not set in stone. And this is the reality of co-parenting. It is a daily thing. This person is not leaving your life. This person is in your life for a very long time. And so another thing that my dad said was start as you mean to go on. Um, Yeah. And I think that that was a really good grounding for me that this is not the end of a relationship, this is the start of a different sort of relationship and one that's really important um, for raising our children. You've got to kind of see it as like a bit of a, a business relationship and the the aim of the business is to raise the, the three children or however many children you have as well as you possibly can. Mm. Lucy, how do you deal with being in a, a – well, having an ex who is – the Disneyland parent. So maybe if you can't afford as many things but your ex-partner is taking them out every night and doing all these fun things and when the kids come to you and they're like, well, how come we're not going to Disneyland tomorrow? I think you can't get too caught up in that. It's really easy to. But children know. Children understand. Children know who makes their school lunches. Children know who's tucking them in at night, reading them stories, going to home reading. Children are not silly they understand what's going on and look there's nothing wrong with being the Disneyland parent if that's how you choose to parent your children look it's great to go to every Disneyland in existence I mean excellent right that sounds fantastic but it's also great to be taken to school on time Mm. one doesn't cancel the other out they're just different yeah what's one what's one of your favorite chapters in the book so I think probably my favorite chapter is the sane parent chapter and it's one it's the one that has really resonated enough and of course I didn't come up with the concept so that's annoying (laughs) (laughs) thanks dad yeah thanks (laughs) turns out 40 years of one thing does you do learn you pick up some stuff but 
really I think that has resonated the most in people who have read the book that that kind of really clicked into in in their minds about oh this is it's a choose your own adventure Mm. and I choose to do it this way Mm. I choose to be the same parent and to give my children a great childhood I love that because I always say like it's a new chapter but choosing your own adventure is so true because it was a chapter that I didn't know I was going to have is what I always say but you're you know the terminology of that is is amazing right you know choose your own adventure it's like yeah baby yeah for people who have been in long marriages I think J.K. Rowling said it best, uh, rock bottom was the solid foundation on which I rebuilt my life. And, and that's really true in many divorces. Thanks so much, Lucy, for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks guys. Lucy. Cass, you and I, we both are children of divorce. Our parents are divorced and, you know, you've guided your children through this process. I think speaking to parents as someone who's been through it from the lens of a child, it's such a tricky one because I, I, I know now being a parent, you're always going to be most concerned about the impact that everything that you do has on your kid and this is something that really does, it does rock their world. It wasn't like that for me because my parents, A, never divorced. <laughs> they oh, separate, they, they okay. separated, at, you know, when they were in their early 40s. How old were you? Uh, I was, I'd finished high school, so okay. I was off to university. So it was quite different for me yeah. and my parents, although there was a, you know, a period of time where things weren't going well, I was really separate from it because we were all off at university. So I didn't have the whole, you know, children toing and froing um, between yeah. parents or there being any sort of difficulty like that. And my parents actually never ended up getting divorced. I mean, my dad repartnered, um, but they never divorced. So there was never that really real, I guess, that big D word, you know, which is what is huge for for children. People don't, you know, they underestimate that it is a big word for children to deal with. Yeah. And I do remember at the time it it being quite scary. And, you know, I was probably about nine when I knew that things weren't right. My parents stayed under the same roof for many years for financial reasons. But I think the thing that people underestimate is how intuitive kids are. And the reason that they are is because they are programmed to pick up on your signals from the moment they come out without words. So no matter what you think is is being sheltered from them, they know. They Mm. know it all. They pick up on everything, any sort of toxicity or anything. They're they're feeling it. They feel it. I watched the uh, movie Marriage Story yesterday. Oh, did you? Yeah, what an end. You know, it was just so sort of eye-opening because you really get to see both sides and how things are misconstrued and how going through the sort of, you know, the channels of what is the the legal proceedings, how it can be misconstrued and kind of really get away from how people are feeling. Yeah, one of the, and I'm really interested to hear what our child psychologist, the sort of tips that she has in terms of how open you are with the kids and how much you tell them. Because one of the things I remember as a kid, you know the movie Mrs Doubtfire? Mm. So I love that film, but it was actually the most triggering film for me because one of the end scenes is they're in a divorce court proceedings and I'm, I'm actually even feeling mm. teary thinking about it. And I remember the mum was trying to take sole custody where she was trying to prove that the dad was an unfit dad and that he wouldn't have access to them. Mm. And I remember as a kid, because I knew that my parents, that was probably what was going to happen, they were going to go down the divorce road, I was petrified that I would be kept from my dad. 
Mm. And I was a real daddy's girl. And so I don't really recall a whole lot at the time, but I don't know how much was communicated about that that wasn't going to happen. And that's why I, I guess the courts and, you know, mediation is in place these days to get people to understand that children need both parents. Yeah. They need to have contact with both parents and, you know, um, unless, of course, there's, you know, a, a danger to yeah. the children by a parent, that's the only real way that they the children won't be seeing their other parent. Yeah. But I think for this episode, for anyone listening, if this is what you're going through currently, you are doing the best thing for your kids. And my number one thing that I tell people is that when people say, oh, we want to stay together for the kids when you really shouldn't be together, it's you're doing your children a disservice by staying together in a toxic environment because as soon as my dad moved out of the, the family home, I had two happy homes instead of one toxic one. And I, as a, I think I was 14, as a 14-year-old, I had new lightness and I was much happier and, and, and functioning much better as a person when I had two happy homes. So that would be my number one advice for you. You haven't ruined your children's world and you're doing the best that you can. We know about the same parent, but what effect is all of this having on our kids? So how do you guide your children through separation and how do you make them feel okay when their world, as they know, it's totally just flipped upside down on its head? We're joined by clinical psychologist Belinda Jones from Lighthouse Child and Adolescent Psychology to talk us through this. Belinda, is there an ideal time to tell your children that you're separating? Where there isn't conflict that can be dangerous or where conflict isn't an issue, where you have a separation that's perhaps mutual or mostly mutual and we can still be civil together and we can still have a conversation about what what's going on and what matters and what our plan is and that conversation is likely to be successful then then yes that that is because it's not about one person doing something to the other it's more about how our family is changing and I think if we we stick we kind of keep to this global idea of the family that it's it's not one person leaving or another person having done something it's you know our family is changing. Belinda can you step us through maybe give us an example uh, what would be an appropriate approach for a younger child and then a different approach maybe for an adolescent so for a younger child, what are some ways that we can we can tell our children? For younger children, I think it's it's really important not to go into too much detail that they're not going to understand. And we, we might feel like we're glossing over things, but at, the reality is that children of, of sort of like lower primary school or um, preschool or daycare age, they live their day-to-day life, but they don't always have bigger understandings of what relationships mean or and they certainly don't really know what adult relationships mean so we we find kind of a a phrase that seems the best fit which is could be something you know very basic like mummy and daddy or mummy and mummy or whichever two parents we're talking about you know aren't going to live together anymore but that doesn't mean that we're we're not still both your mummies or not still your mummy or daddy or both your daddies. So there, there isn't a, um, 
a sort of a rule about what you should say, but a, you would work out what kind of information your child might understand and realise that if they ask questions like, well, why, that again you have a very basic explanation and it could be something very simple like, well, we've, we don't really work live together very well anymore and we, we're just fighting a lot and we want to get along better and so we've worked out that probably the best thing to do is that we live in different places, you know, or whatever kind of is is unique to your situation but it's just very basic and understanding that when children ask why sometimes you can give them an answer and they sort of understand but often what they really mean by why is that they're just it's beyond them so there isn't really any explanation that you could give them that they would truly understand and so by asking why is not obliging you to get to the bottom of a point or get to a point where you sort of feel to yourself oh they really get it because the reality is it's very unlikely that they're really going to get it because it's about adult relationships. Adolescents are a lot more aware of what adult relationships entail or might look like. They're a little bit more perceptive about uh, the meaning of things. So children of all ages are very perceptive about sort of tone of relationship and the vibe or the feelings between a couple and they respond to stress of different kinds adolescents are more likely to put more context to those experiences and so they might notice something like one parent not coming home very often or as in like coming home later and later or being less involved or they may notice more conflict Um, so they generally respond better to you know, a generalised statement, but then some more specific information, whether that's about, you know, we, we're, we've tried really hard to find a better way to communicate, but it just hasn't worked. And we feel like if we stay together, it it will just become a really un, 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 not a nice place to be in this family. And that's not what either of us want for, for you guys. When you talk about older children, Belinda, how honest, uh, you know, is the conversation with them? Because as you say, they do understand more. They probably have picked up on a lot more in the lead up. How, how much honesty, you know, should you give them? I think we've got to think in terms of what we know that they're going to understand. So they can know things and have their own version of understanding it, but that's not the same as really understanding. So, for example, you know, infidelity is something that, that can happen and adolescents often know about that, not usually because they find out. It's, it's because somebody either tells them or they hear something or it's rare to be kind of like um, told to them in a upfront and neutral way. It's usually... Uh, like in the heat of the moment kind of thing that is said or they overhear something. So certainly you can talk to them about having feelings for other people but I guess if you're talking about like, well, this, you know, this person had an affair or, you know, and that's said in an anger, in a way of anger or betrayal that that the young person is going to really pick up on the feeling rather than the the sort of the meaning of the, the big context. So you know, they have an idea what that means, but they don't really understand the big picture. You know, what happened five years ago that that brought us to this point where there's been infidelity in our our relationship and that they can't understand those sorts of things, but they certainly can understand that somebody, you know, had an affair or something like that. So it's really important to 
limit their knowledge where you can to things that they can actually understand, not understanding their own version of it because, you know, we all know that things like infidelity are very complicated um, and it, it's just outside of an adolescence range to really to truly understand that and so therefore the way they're going to take it uh, isn't necessarily going to be very helpful around how they're going to manage with ongoing relationships with both parents. One of the things that I understand is that it's quite common for children to think it's their fault. Why is that and and what sort of things that can we say and, and what should we be repeating and emphasising and reassuring to, to make them feel safe? Yes, yeah, so I think one of the things we know about taking responsibility is it's a it's designed for us to protect ourselves from the alternative, which is that I have no control over my world and my life and bad things can happen at any minute that I have no ability to control. And that's quite a very that's a frightening thing to think about and so we as a species not not unique to children but we generally put ourselves in the middle because if it's my fault then at least I have the opportunity to control something so so in a way to think something's your fault is a protective thing to feel or think but what children often do is they make it quite specific in their head so they they think oh if I hadn't been naughty on this occasion or if I'd been better at school or they kind of make up reasons why it could be their fault Um, and that's the part that gets a bit problematic for kids is because they they kind of create a concrete structure around a very abstract concept and that's where they can get caught up. What are some other things that they might need from parents at this time? Well, it, you know, it does very easily get quite complicated and in that sense keeping things as simple as possible is often ideal. The thing that we know children often don't do well with is lots of transitions. So anything that involves change is, is tricky. So we, if, you, if you're any kind of transition brings things up again. And so it, whatever arrangements you make with your partner when you're becoming an, a different version of your family and separating, we, we still want to have arrangements that are pretty straightforward and follow the principles of common sense that, that um, often gets lost when we try to divide up days and nights and that kind of thing. So be, keeping it as simple as we can. And the other thing that is quite difficult to do in practice, although we, a lot, most people would agree in principle, is that everybody in the family has their own experience of separation. So, you know, if a family's got three children, that's three separate experiences of separation. And one of the things that's difficult is if, say, two of the children are fine with what's going on they seem to be coping they seem to be going along with things but the third one is just not coping at all and is finding it really overwhelming and they're having a lot of behavioral emotional difficulties it's it's very important to come back to that there is it's not always possible to find something that suits everybody all of the time and it's totally fine for people to have different experiences. So in practice, this is hard to manage because 
we it's hard to respond to you know five different people in a family of you know five five different experiences so that's quite a challenging thing to do but you know putting the practicalities aside one of the things that's really crucial is to accept that you know this particular child is feeling really sad about something the other two you know at this moment not so much but everybody has their own version of it and that's okay what are some of the signs that as you know as a parent um they might be as you say there's three children or four children and they what are the signs that one of their children or more than one isn't coping very well what's the behavior that they might be displaying that you might think of you know on on surface it seems like it has nothing to do with you know, a separation, but, but it might, you know, that often could occur, say in young children to start with. I mean, the one thing that you could apply to everybody is this idea of regression that, that, you know, you might have a four-year-old who is toilet trained daytime without any trouble for the last 18 months and suddenly they're having toilet accidents. Or you might have a 10-year-old who's quite independent at, at getting themselves ready for school and suddenly is sort of not able to pack their bag or get their books ready, you know, or, or a teenager who was quite connected socially uh, but is feeling like they don't know who their friends are or uh, they've, they feel like nobody nobody's there for them or something, something's come up with their schoolwork. They've used to be able to do their maths homework without any help but now you know, it seems sudden, but now just don't seem to be able to get through it. So if your child used to be able to do something, but now isn't able to, that that's a kind of what we call regression. It just means that kind of developmentally, they've slipped back. And it doesn't mean that they've lost the gains. It just means that they, it's a way that children often show stress uh, is through regression. And so I think, you think if you think in your head, like, oh, my child is 10, and they haven't done this since they were seven. Oh, okay. Well, that that makes sense. That they're kind of, they've lost some of their development, and it's only it's a temporary thing. It's it's a sign of of overwhelm or stress. It's not like a global sign that they've gone backwards. So it's not something to worry about. But it is something that we need to support. And it's okay to meet your child where they're at. So if your child could previously do something, and now they they're not managing those things, it's not a time where we kind of ask our kids to step up and, you know, hey, you're 10, you know, you could should be able to do these things. If your child is regressing because of a, a stress or an overwhelm, then it's it's absolutely okay to meet them where they're at, even though you know that they can actually do those things. We have as adults usually someone that we can talk to. We have friends, you know, close friends or girlfriends or, you know, they have you know, the, the male ver- versions have, you know, their mates. But for children, sometimes it's not something that they want to go and talk to their friends about, is it? So in, in, in my situation, I thought it was good that my children did talk to someone just so that they, you know, got to have that conversation. Do you think that, that that's a good thing for them to do at some point? Yeah, I think it's always great to have a neutral or more neutral appearing to, to the child person involved. And that can be a godparent or an aunt or a cousin or somebody who's an adult but, you know, close to the family but not right in the family. Often those sorts of external people can be of great assistance. Yeah, kids often are conflicted about telling their friends because they they don't 
like contamination in a way. They like to have a, have some time out um, from thinking about these things and school's their place just to be in that moment and learn and hang out with their friends. So it's not unusual for kids to keep that kind of thing private. Uh, but if, if you and your family don't have a godparent or or an auntie or, who, or somebody appropriate to talk to, then sometimes kids like talking to school counsellors uh, because they're, they're often just a nice neutral zone for, for kids to reach out to. Some kids don't like to have have it at school because it just, again, it feels like it, it contaminates their school zone. And then it's not uncommon for children to talk to a professional person, whether it's a psychologist or a social worker in in a therapeutic relationship where the child has a neutral space and they're because children often feel quite conflicted about their emotional experience say they have feelings where they don't like a parent uh, they're having having angry feelings towards one parent and but then they feel guilty about having angry feelings towards that parent and there's lots of stuff you know even with if parents as they've separated, are doing the best they can and they're really keeping things neutral and focusing on on supporting their kids as best they can. Even in the, the most, you know, beautifully done experiences, children can still have a whole raft of quite intense emotions about the changes in their family and it's nothing to do with whether somebody's done the wrong thing or hasn't handled something well. It's just that, it's that, that that's their personal experience. And so it can feel too confronting to talk to a parent about those feelings. And so a neutral person like a, a therapist is able to hear that child's experience and, and validate it and help them work it through. Thank you so much, Belinda. It's been really fantastic speaking with you and I hope people get a lot out of that. Thanks so much for your time, Belinda. This week's divorce story is with James, who was married for 12 years and has been now separated and divorced for the last 10 years. James has four children and at the time that he separated, their ages were three, five, seven and nine. Ten years on, they're all teenagers now. So James, thanks so much for sharing your divorce story with us today. Can you tell us a bit about your separation story? So look, I mean, it, it, it's all a blur in one way. I mean, when you've got four kids under five, you're just trying to survive and trying to stay alive in terms of working, in terms of trying to maintain a relationship, in terms of trying to stay connected with your kids. In terms of sleep cycle, in terms of bills, in terms of all those things. Um, and I guess with us, we hadn't spent a long time together before we had our first child. So when you get into the maelstrom of kids and it's constant sleepless nights and things, I guess we sort of, we were there in the same house, we worked as a team, but we didn't really stay in touch with who we, we, we were outside being you know mum and dad for the kids and I guess over time it just got to a point where we had gotten through things but we'd lost touch with who we, we were in ourselves and what we, we, we were there for other than just being a full-time mum and dad and I guess we just sort of started to 
not know who we were like we once once did. It became all about the kids and and less about us. Like we, we stopped going out, stopped doing anything for ourselves, didn't have a timetable that involved me having, you know, you know, some quiet time with her. We both went to bed at different times and we're tired and everything else. So we started just separate in ourselves, even though we we're in the same house. Yeah. And so um, at what point, like when you guys had made that decision together to separate, at what point did you tell your children? Because they were quite young, weren't they? Yeah, so the eldest was nine and I get her to recall the story and, you know, for her it's quite a, it's quite a big thing in her life. Um, you know, I, I guess the issue that the kids fundamentally struggled with that when we separated, it wasn't anything, there wasn't an affair, there was no gambling, there was no drugs involved, there was no domestic violence, there wasn't anything really. We, we just sort of didn't connect anymore as... Uh, as, as she did, I guess, as but before. I guess the night I finally told them, they were both in bed in their own rooms. And I said, look, Dad's not staying here anymore. Uh, you know, Mum and Dad have been having chats um, and we were up front with them. They, I mean, you know, at their age, they're quite perplexed and not that understanding of why. All that they can see is that Mum's in the house, Dad's in the house, I'm going to work and I'm helping out with the kids and those type, type of things. But when, when I left, I, I, I left them and I both heard them crying in their rooms. Mm. And so from that moment onwards, when I knew I was actually, you know, having to stay elsewhere, that those cries still stand with me now. And I was determined from that point onwards that I'd do everything I could to make sure that they still had the best chance they could having dad there and but but also making that mum was there and that mum got cared for as well. James they often talk about the ideal way of talking to the children about or letting them know that you're separating is for the entire family to sit down but as you and I clearly know that that's sometimes not possible how do you feel about that now that it wasn't something that you and your former wife sat down and talked to the kids about? Yeah, um, look, I, that's, that's a hard one because I guess when you do separate and you do split up, you're not really in the same mindset to sit down and try and talk it through with your kids as you like. There's a lot of heightened emotion. The younger two were a little bit younger. They were three and five. And my five-year-old, she's got, uh, at, at that uh, stage, she's got uh, special needs as well. So we couldn't necessarily just talk that through with them. I, I guess it was more, I, I spent time with them and I talked it through from my standpoint and then uh, my ex talked it through from her standpoint. James, what were some of the biggest challenges during that initial period of time when you separated in, re in relation to the children? Um, look, I think in relation to the children, the biggest things were everything had changed for them. Dad was no longer there as he used to be always there. Um, mum and dad weren't mum and dad in the sense that they had seen us as but, but before. So the challenges for the kids at a young age was trying to get them to understand and process why this had happened 
and that it wasn't their fault and that things are still okay. Um, so they needed to feel secure, safe. They needed to know that there was still a consistency of dad and mum being there and that they had a strong routine in that. So is that what you think really helped your children the, mo the most? Yes, I, I think in one sense, given they're young, you can't necessarily talk it through and process it with them. So it's more in your actions, it's more in a routine, and it's more what you actually can do for them. So, I mean, like, for instance, when we, we split up, as you know, it's a hard time, you, you know, you've got to go through the financials and, uh, you know, you have, have the divorce and we have to get lawyers for a bit. So the, the, the thing that was central in my mind and, and also in, in my ex's mind was to be child-centric and child-focused with everything that we did because everything we do ultimately impacts on the, the kids. So for me, my key was that they stayed in the same house, the same school, the same friends, the same area, the same sport clubs that those things were AR stable. The last thing he wanted to do was to lose the house, that they had to move, um, that, that my ex had to move. Things were harder for her and the kids, and things were also harder for me. So in that, there is some compromise, there's some financial compromise, but I think when you put that in the context of what's in the best interest of kids, that that wasn't the most important thing. So I, I guess for the kids, I'd be, I'd rather cope with the change and cope with having to, to adjust and stay in a new place and a new environment and, and try and maintain a consistency and a normal base of routine as I could. You know, there's a huge impact on kids when you're divorced and the whole world is changed in an instance. Um, so everything you do has got to be in the context of how is this impacting on my kids? What is the least um, amount of impact I want to have on, on my kids? How does that look like for them? What is required of me to keep them as stable as they poss possibly can? As you know, kids their days, they don't really know how to talk. They don't really know how they feel. And also, so if, if you break that down, it's not just about me, it's about their mum. You know, looking after the mum means looking after my kids, which means maintaining things as stable as you can. It, so, I mean, I'm 10 years on, there's a lot of things I learned that I did the wrong way and that we both did the wrong way, that we both had to learn from. I, I reflect back now, 10 years on, and um, I'm still learning, but I think, I think I'm very happy with the pathway I chose. And for those out there where it's quite raw and quite new, I highly recommend if, if you're child-focused and child-centric, it's a good plumb line to hold you and your ex-partner in the same place and to try and work from the same standpoint. Um, and, uh, you know, that's really got us through everything. I think initially, as you know, it can get... Initially, when we started, we were dropping the kids off at one or two's houses. You have no time. The four kids are walking in. She might be upset about something. I might be upset about something. You know, there's conflict or there's heightened emotion and you don't want to do that in front of the kids. It's already, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're already upset and things. So 
part of what I did and part of what I raised with her is was try and do uh, have a third party involved. So we went to Relationships Australia and we did mediation twice a year. And what we do is you go to mediation, it's a two hour session. Um, you have a mediator there, she puts what you need to discuss on the board and for two hours we talk it through with no distractions. And we, we basically went through what the current expectations are, what the current issues are, finances are. Um, we would timetable the whole year when I'm having the kids, school holidays, when, when she needed time off, uh, school routine, school homework. We tried to um, parent them the same way in, in my house and in her house and also be open and flexible as to that, you know, she may have certain things that she does differently to, to me and that that's okay. I find it just took all the angst and all the drama and all the, the main issues that would come up when you drop kids off every, every week, took that part away and it gave the kids a balance and a sense of, you know, mum and dad still talking, mum's okay, dad's okay. Um, and, and, and just made them feel safe. And just so they could see that we, we could talk well and, and that we weren't at one another um, and trying to be an example as, you know, as much as we actually could. If you knew then what you knew now, what would be the one thing that you would tell yourself? I think the one thing I would tell myself is um, obviously it's always about your kids. And when it's about your kids, it's also about mum and dad. So I think the key thing is also to make sure that you take care of their mum, your ex-partner, as much as you take care of yourself. Um, and only yeah. that way, from that standpoint, can things stay stable for them. Fantastic. James, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for listening to Divorce Story this week. Next week, Cass, we're going more on to the relaunch. It's all about career, ladies. So that's a, a really positive, uplifting one. I'm excited. The new chapter. I look forward to talking about this one. Yes. And if you want to hear more from us, follow us on socials at Cass Thorburn and at Annalise Dent. And Divorce Story is produced by me, Annalise Dent. And me, Cass Thorburn. The executive producer is Eliza Ratliff. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the show and leave us a five-star rating and a review. And only a really good review. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening.